0: What's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together? So, thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's gonna support. We appreciate it. Ashley, you're new to the show. I know you've been working with us behind the scenes for the last few months, but welcome, formally, everyone. This is Ashley.
1: Hi, and thank you. Okay, so I've got a question for you. Do you break rules?
0: Uh, <laughs> wow. Okay, um, you're coming in hot the first time for the show. Um, I was hoping for a little bit of a softball. That, that's a good question. Um,
1: <laughs> no, for real though. I've been thinking about how we all break rules, knowingly or unknowingly. Most of them seem like low consequence, especially when we only do them once. But some rules are social or cultural, like a code of conduct. Some rules sort of feel more like suggestions, and some rules can get you a ticket, or worse, if you don't obey them.
0: So, yes, I have, I will admit this, I have broken a rule in my life. What rules have you broken, Ashley?
1: Oh, so I have to go first. Um, well, let's first start by saying I try not to break rules, um, but I'll admit that I speed. Like a lot? Um, yeah, I would say a lot. I try to go about 10 over, I would say. Anything more than that seems like it'd be too obvious, and anything less just feels too slow. So what about you? What rules do you break?
0: Um, if, you, if you're going to admit to speeding, uh, I will admit to jaywalking <laughs> about that. Uh, I, I am a serial jaywalker. I'm willing to admit that on the radio. Um,
1: Have you ever cut in line?
0: Jeez, uh, you're, you're killing me right now. Yes, yeah but they weren't paying attention. Someone wasn't paying attention and it was completely opportunistic and no one ever noticed. So I don't I don't really feel like it's that terrible of things. And I would definitely say it's not a habit.
1: Did you ever have a fake ID?
0: Oh my God. Uh, I really hope my children are not listening to this like, or they don't dig this up. Yes. Um, <laughs> but didn't use it that much, mostly because it was bad and I didn't really drink that much. And I was from Des Moines, Iowa, but I didn't actually know how to pronounce Des Moines. But this is like a, like when I think about this, this is like a pretty crazy conversation. Like I I haven't really thought about my own behavior, which is funny because like the ideas of rule breaking and enforcement of them come up all the time in our society right now. And I'm sort of surprised when I think about it in terms of my own self. Like I would say in general that I follow the rules more now than when I was young. So you ask a lot of those questions, I feel like. Like, they're sort of answers that I would have answered for my my 23-year-old self, um, and I definitely follow more rules now. Hmm.
1: Why do you think that is?
0: Well, I think that sometimes, like, when we're young, we experiment with rules. Like, have did you ever steal candy from a corner store when you were a kid or take something from a friend's house?
1: Yes. I stole candy when I was a kid, and it was terrifying, and I still feel a little shame admitting it now.
0: Yeah. Like, almost all of us have some similar story to that. And- and we look back at that at that sort of young age, right? And we're experimenting, right? And we do that. We do it because we, we need to understand what happens when no one is looking. When someone who is in charge is not looking, someone who could get you in trouble or look down on you or reprimand you, it's important to understand how that makes you feel when you you know, bend, step over, or break the rules. Like it does it create a thrill? Do you feel guilt? And I think through that, we begin to understand what our tolerance level is. And that experimentation is key to our development, like on a personal level and on a societal level. Today, Ashley, you, have a story about what happens when there are no rules, or at least there's no one there to enforce them. A story about a beloved park caught between one of the world's biggest population centers and a government shutdown. In the middle of it all, a climber, who became the voice of reason, a real-life Lorax. I'm Fitzka Hall.
1: And I'm Ashley Langholtz.
0: You are listening to The Dirtbag Diaries.
2: The first time I came out with the Joshua Tree, um, I was in the military, and I came out to 29 Palms to the military base to do some training. And I had already been a rock climber, and so I knew about it. So my first weekend, I just hopped in my truck, and I drove into the park, and I was just like, whoa, this place is amazing.
1: When Rand Abbott first visited Joshua Tree in the 80s, it was a national monument, not a national park. And like many, he was swept away. It's the meeting grounds of the Mojave and Colorado deserts, a landscape filled with unique plants, wildlife, granite monoliths, sand dunes, and of course, the Joshua Tree, the twisted prickly tree that would fit perfectly into a Dr. Seuss book. Rand spent his free time climbing, hiking, camping, and watching wildlife. The park became his oasis. Rand's path eventually led him overseas. Yet eight years later, He found himself back in Joshua Tree.
2: I came back and got stationed at Camp Pendleton on the coast, but I came out here as an instructor, and I would go into the park and climb and just unplug and spend time in in the park and in the community. And at that time, I was going through some stuff with my career in the military and with some injuries that I had and just adjusting to my Understanding of what I was doing in the military, I guess you would say. I remember one time I was just at my wits' ends and um, I decided to go into the park and just try to clear my head. I drove in and hiked out in the middle of nowhere and I just laid down and I looked up and I saw the Milky Way and I was like, I could reach up and touch it. And I just got this feeling that everything's going to be okay.
1: Two years later, Rand left the military. Although he left with an ailing back, he stayed active in the years that followed, exploring the West, climbing, surfing, and raising his daughter. In 2007, Rand re-injured his back in a surfing accident. During surgery, a doctor accidentally cut his spinal cord, ultimately leaving him paralyzed from the waist down.
2: Part of my process for dealing with that was um, getting active again. I bought this van and made it four-wheel drive and got it all set up to camp and travel. And I took off and I traveled all over the western United States. But I kept coming back to Joshua Tree. One for the climbing, two for the energy. When I first started climbing, I was just following. So somebody would lead a pitch and then I would jug up it. I made a special hand, ascender so that I could jug up the line and I would clean the routes. The first one I did was um, over at the Thin Wall, and I remember getting three-quarters of the way up to climb and all of a sudden I looked down and I saw my wheelchair was empty. I was free. I was free of my wheelchair. The rock didn't care that I was paralyzed. The people that I was climbing with didn't care that I was paralyzed and It just opened my mind to going, it doesn't matter that my legs don't work. I can do whatever I want to do. Whenever I want to do it, I just got to figure out how to do it. And Joshua Tree was the place that that happened. The community of Joshua Tree accepted me not as a disabled person, but just as a human being. So I finally decided to move out here.
1: When Rand moved to the town of Joshua Tree in 2014, the national park basically became his backyard. He doesn't have a TV because he'd rather watch the sunrise, or the sunset, or the wildlife. He climbs in the park during the week and leaves the routes for the visitors on the weekends.
2: Being here gives me the opportunity to play around. I mean, there's some climbs that I just do laps on all the time. Indian Coast, five minutes from my house, and I go out down there and I get on right V-crack or V-crack and I just... I'll do laps all day long on it. I look in my backyard, and there's Joshua Tree National Park, and uh, it's amazing out here.
1: On December 22, 2018, parts of the U.S. federal government shut down after Congress missed a deadline to reach a budget agreement. The primary point of contention was a proposed wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. Hundreds of thousands of federal employees were either furloughed or began to work without pay the U.S. Department of Interior, which funds the National Park Service, was one of the agencies affected. The shutdown left Joshua Tree and many other national parks open, yet largely unmonitored. Joshua Tree is a three-hour drive from 23 million people, and late December falls right in the middle of its peak visitation. On Saturday, December 22nd, the park had two law enforcement officers on duty, two officers for over 1,200 square miles. There's no one smiling at the entrance booth, no one making a young visitor a junior ranger, also no one stocking restrooms with toilet paper, and no one taking out the trash. Rand knew it would be busy, and he knew the impact crowds have on the park, even when it's fully staffed. So he decided to get to work.
2: Living in the park and going in the park all the time, I see the normal damage that happens. Trash and out-of-bound camping and out-of-bound fires, people taking their dogs where they're not supposed to be, Leading up to the 22nd of December, I started hearing chatter of, hey, parks are going to shut down. Joshua Tree is going to stay open. People started talking about, hey, this is going to be great. Let's go to Joshua Tree. Christmas and New Year's is one of the busiest times in the park. You have anywhere between 400,000 to 700,000 people coming to the park in a two and a half week time span. That's a lot of people. All of a sudden the word went out, hey, free camping, Joshua Tree, let's go. I've got people that are driving in from Utah. I've got families that have planned family holiday vacations to come to Joshua Tree and see what I think is so magnificent. I want them to have a good experience. So I got up that morning, and I went down to the local Stater Brothers, and I, I think I bought like 150 rolls of toilet paper. I bought two gallons of bleach. I bought two gallons of pine saw. Bought a bunch of cleaning rags and some spray bottles, and I went in through the 29 Palms entrance. And the first place I stopped was Live Oak. Live Oak is day use only. And I pulled in there and people were camping. And people were off-roaded. And uh, I was just like, whoa.
1: On day one, Rand started cleaning. He sprayed down the bathrooms and stocked them with toilet paper. He emptied trash cans and packed his van with garbage bags. As he drove through the park, he also talked with visitors that he saw breaking the park's rules, many of which Ram believes didn't know they were doing anything wrong. Even before the shutdown, only about a third of people stop at the visitor center for information.
2: People look at the desert, and I think a lot of people think that it's this tough, rugged area, and it can withstand people. It can't. One vehicle drove about 20 feet off the dirt road and was up against the rock, And I said something politely to that guy, and he was just like, oh. And I honestly think he didn't know. He said he pulled in at like 11 o'clock at night and went to the first spot that he saw. And I said, I'm not law enforcement. I can't tell you not to camp here. And he's like, it's not open camping? I said, no. I said, it's day use only. And he said, well, why is it day use only? And I said, because you're in a bighorn sheep migration area. They come out at night. So this is from sunrise to sunset. He was polite. He's like, whoa, I'm really sorry, dude.
1: By that afternoon, Rand says it started to get noticeably worse. There are nine campgrounds in Joshua Tree National Park and nearly 500 campsites. On a typical Saturday in December, every reservable site would be booked weeks, if not months prior, and every first-come site would be occupied by the morning. As night fell, more and more people arrived at the park, designated campsites filled and then overfilled. Over the course of the first weekend, the impact of the shutdown started to show.
2: That's when the circus started. Hidden Valley Campground has 48 sites in it. And it's six people per campsite there. That's what the government, through doing impact surveys, has determined has the minimal impact. Well, by Monday morning, there was 20 to 25 people per campsite. And there was people camping in areas that weren't campsites. It had become a free-for-all. And the trash was horrendous. I went in there on Monday morning and I drove through Hidden Valley and there was beer cans all over the place and there was cigarette butts all over the place. In retrospect, I should have taken some videos of some of the stuff, just how crowded the places were. Because some of the stuff, it was so flagrant and so ridiculous that it was actually comical. It's like, there's no way in your right mind that you think this is okay. I pulled up to a campsite and there was a fresh cut down juniper tree in a barbecue pit. First of all, it's not going to burn. You just cut it down. Second of all, it's a juniper. You're in a national park. Why would you do that? And the people just looked at me, and, and I just said, like, I'm not even going to ask why you did this, but that's coming out, and I poured water on it. And what'd they do? They just looked at me like I was insane.
1: Did you feel like you were going insane?
2: <laughs> there was, yeah, there was a couple times where I'd get out of the park, and I'd call some friends, and I'd just be like, I'm losing it driving out, seeing stuff, people climbing Joshua trees, people driving off the road. There was probably six or seven times where I was coming out the west entrance, and I'm like, I just need to get out of here, because I'm at the point to where my patience is running out. Even though I'm in a wheelchair, I'm probably going to punch someone.
1: He wanted to be climbing. He wanted to be watching wildlife. Instead, he watched a place he loved be misused and disrespected. Overcrowded campsites. Vehicles driving off-road, spreading invasive plants, people walking on delicate, cryptobiotic soil, the soil he knows keeps the desert from blowing or washing away. He watched the very events he and other locals knew would happen, because they happen regularly, but to a much greater scale. It wore him out.
2: Tuesday morning I went in the park at 6 o'clock in the morning, and I went through the 29 Palms entrance, and um, I got out to Live Oak Park, and I saw a guy had a Airstream trailer that was probably 30 foot long, and he had this huge GMC 4x4 dually, and he was probably a hundred yards out into the desert. I just started crying. I saw the tracks, I just knew the damage that was done. And I started crying for the bighorn sheep. I started crying for the desert tortoises. I started crying for all the animals and all the plants. Because they don't have a voice. A bighorn sheep can't go online and post a blog. It can't call us congressmen. They were here before we were. We don't have a right to destroy their playground. We don't have a right to destroy their area. And when I saw that, and then I went over to Split Rock, and there was two huge fire rings built, and there was trash all over the place, I pulled out I drove down the road for about two miles almost to where Skull Rock was and I just sat in my van and I cried for 45 minutes because I didn't know what to do anymore. It was crazy.
1: just a few days, the toll of the shutdown was evident. And although Rand didn't know it at the time, he was only four days into a 35-day shutdown. More after the break.
0: Support for the diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer rounds of bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Writers of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save thirty percent off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbag diaries. The link is in the show notes. Please
2: check it out.
1: After a momentary break at Skull Rock, Rand turned around and went back to work.
2: I have a philosophy in life that there's two sides to every coin. If something happens, you flip the coin, you try to make it a good thing. So I'm wheeling around Hidden Valley and I'm picking up trash. I'm going in the campsites, I'm picking up beer bottles, I'm picking up whiskey bottles, I'm picking up toilet paper. And at first people are like, hey, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm just cleaning up. And then some people recognize me they're like, hey, that's Rand the Paralyzed Climber. And they come over and they start asking about climbs and this and that. And I said, hey guys, listen, I'm not a ranger. I just live here. But um, there's only supposed to be eight people per campsite maximum here. And I go, You got like 18 people here. And they're like, Yeah. I'm like, Do me a favor. Just clean up. It's going to get destroyed. And I'm cleaning them. I said, You guys have to work with me if you could. And then all of a sudden they're like, Do you have extra cleaning gear? And I'm like, Yeah. So I gave them some cleaning gear, gave them trash bags. Within two days, I went back to Hidden Valley and it was 80% cleaner. These guys were regulating themselves. New people were coming in. They're like, hey, you got to clean up. And I'm coming through. They're like, hey, Rand, we need more toilet paper. We need more trash bags. Just because the law enforcement isn't here, just because somebody's not in a pair of green pants and a tan shirt and says National Park Service on it doesn't mean it's a free-for-all. If we want to continue to climb here and if we want to have our kids climb here, and we want to have our kids come out and see the Milky Way and see a bighorn sheep, then we need to realize that we're the guest here. We're not the true residents of the park. The true residents are the bighorn sheep, the desert tortoise, the roadrunners, the mountain lions, all the different lizards that are there. Those are the true residents.
1: The local community also stepped up during the shutdown. The guide services organized volunteers and allowed people to drop off donations. Local businesses donated supplies. As word spread about the park being understaffed, people from L.A. and all over the western U.S. and even New York were showing up in Joshua Tree to help clean. The truth was, people cared.
2: That's a huge message that we can send to the politicians. We don't have to tell them that this is their problem and they need to fix it. Actions speak louder than words. It's like, okay, we lay a puzzle down and it's like, Everybody takes one piece. If we all just do our one little piece of that puzzle, we can collectively make a beautiful picture. And we can preserve a beautiful picture. I realized that that came to life during the shutdown. There was a lot of arguing. There was a lot of blame. People didn't want the park closed. People wanted it closed. Businesses didn't want it closed because they didn't want to lose money. I understand that. But we have to find a balance.
1: The park staff wasn't sitting back either. They adapted to the changing conditions. Over time, more staff were brought back. Campgrounds and other areas were closed. The park was even set to close on January 10th, but they received last minute approval to use entrance fees to support staffing necessary to keep it open. After the shutdown ended, the park reported 24 miles of off-road damage and 59 incidents of vandalism, ranging from graffiti to cut locks to cut down trees. The park also reported that some visitors had unknowingly packed out historic artifacts thinking they were trash and clean graffiti with harmful chemicals. The park has developed a contingency plan for future shutdowns. Despite the damage done, Rand says some good did come from the shutdown.
2: I think the shutdown brought awareness to everyday issues that happen in the park. It also brought awareness to how busy the park is. And it also brought awareness to how little funding there is for the parks. Last year, after the shutdown, people came out to boulder. They went to this pretty famous bouldering site. Weather was warming up. Guy throws down his bouldering pad, gets down to put on his shoes so he can boulder, looks underneath the rock, and there's a desert tortoise. I think there was three people there to boulder. Two of them stayed One got in his car, drove to cell phone reception, got a hold of a park ranger, came out, showed him exactly where it was so that they could close the area down for the migration. Why did the person do it? Because he heard something about that during the shutdown on the news. That's amazing to me. I grew up on the East Coast. I grew up on a farm, and I was taught to always leave a place better than you found it, no matter what it is, but especially wilderness. The land doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to any of us. We're guests here on this earth. It's my responsibility to make sure that my daughter's children's children get to see what Joshua Tree is really like not just from a video or from a book, but they get to experience it. There's only one Earth. I don't care what people think, but in 2060s, they're not going to load us all on airplanes and move us to Earth B. This is all we've got. And there is no plan B for Joshua Tree. There is no plan B for Yosemite. There is no plan B for any of this. I mean, if we just talk about Joshua Tree by itself, there's nothing else like it. There's nothing else like it. I don't know if there's a heaven or hell. I don't get into any of that stuff. But I think that this earth is heaven for me. I love it. And the rent that I pay to live here is being of service. And the shutdown just gave me an opportunity to be of service.
0: Thank you Rand, for sharing your story Rand continues to be active in the park climbing picking up micro trash he also sets his eyes on some big walls in yosemite you can follow rand on instagram at rolling through life with a smile okay so we got a few things coming up on the diaries there are a few days left in this month and then it's october so that means dear listener it is time to share your terror worthy tales and in october we'll also open submissions for the shorts you can find more at our website under the tab right for us or follow us on instagram at dirtbag underscore diaries for the latest info music today from kai angle fog lake and canyon kids the tracks are courtesy of free music archive or the artists themselves jacobane and Nice cotto composed our theme song you can find the links to the artists at our website dirtbagdiaries.com this episode was produced by ashley langholz and edited by cordelia Lazars with help from becca Cahal. i'm fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to the dirtbag diaries